Welcome back to Parenting Unpacked. You're here with Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Costantini and Dr. Kristen Summer as we muddle our way through parenthood with evidence, empathy, and common sense. Let's get into today's episode. Okay, hello, welcome back everyone. So nice to be here with you again. We are doing Parenting Unpacked, our podcast with resident PhDs in child development, Dr. Kristen Summer and Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Cosentini. Hi. Hello, Siobhan. How, How are you are today? You? Oh, I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I am also great. My child is sleeping through the night, so I am Yay! feeling exactly the way I was before she was sleeping through the night because we used to sleep great next to each other. But she now sleeps through the so night, nice. so this Christmas, with my extended family, when they ask, how is she sleeping? I can say normal and no one can criticize me for it. Yeah, I mean, both are normal, right? <laughs> yes yeah, and no, are. like kids kids sleep how they sleep. We get very oh, in sleep. Those first, like the, the first couple of years of family gatherings though, when everyone hones in on like how your child is sleeping and by asking, are they a good baby? AKA, do they sleep a lot? Oh. It took me a little while yeah. to learn that I'm not meant to be honest with people about that. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> otherwise, they impose their opinions on what good and bad infant sleep yeah. looks like, even though wakeful babies are protective against things like SIDS, and it's very biologically normal. But so tricky, old school, right? Yeah, old school ideals will die hard. So, anyways, I'm great. Random sidetrack. Sorry. Let's move on to the next thing. (laughs) Well, we were going to talk about, let's share. So let's start off with our meltdowns for the week. What's your meltdowns that um, happened this past week? Look, it is a meltdown because it's associated with meltdowns, but it's actually like a new development and I'm super into it. Um, I don't know why I'm so into it. Like, I guess I'm just like, wow, we're progressing to the next stage. My child now throws herself on the floor with her tantrums. Um, so, yeah. So when she, every time, like, and this, it's mostly for tantrums where she wants something and I say no. That's usually mm. the tantrums where she throws herself on the floor. Um, and I don't know why I find this so exciting. It's just, it's a new change in the way she's responding. Um, and yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, Look, I think a lot of people would be like, oh my God, like if your child does that in public, that's so embarrassing. And I'd just be like, hey, like this is the stereotypical representation that everyone thinks of when a tantrum occurs. They think of a tantrum, yeah. Yeah, if someone sees my kid do this in public, they're going to be like, oh yeah, she's just having a tantrum, dealing with her big feelings. She wanted something and mum said no, like whatever. If anyone walks up to me and says, parent your child better... I'll probably turn around and tell them that I am sorry if they had children that they had to deal with um, that kind of uh, lack of insight into their child uh, because we are parenting our children very well by letting them express that frustration. Otherwise, they're going to bottle it up. And what's going to happen to them, Siobhan, if they bottle it up and they don't let it out? Oh, all kinds of things. <laughs> They'll turn into us. No, I'm kidding. Um, they... <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, obviously it's better to express emotions. Emotions are just signals to how we're experiencing things and that's mm-hmm. a good thing. And But also, like, similarly, we don't need to give our emotions power, per se. Like, 
the more we um, like they're just it's just information it's information that sometimes hijacks our small people's bodies um, and we just have to help them through it is really the best way it's not always easy it's often hard for us as well because we're regularly affected by our emotions um, but yeah like that is so exciting like I, I don't want to make it sound too positive because obviously your child's in distress um, but no it is exciting that she's like it, it shows that her emotional development is happening she's experiencing really strong emotions which is important in life the real challenge that goes with that is learning how to manage them which is obviously what you're starting to navigate more and more yeah and they're really brief at the moment especially the ones that are about like a um a desire for something in particular like sometimes she'll ask to watch the tv and i'll be like we don't watch tv at this time of day we watch tv when i'm cooking dinner um and that's a really brief tantrum like she'll throw herself on the ground and cry and then 30 seconds later she'll be like yeah i'm bored of this and get up and go play um and that's and there's nothing really wrong exciting. with sorry yeah there's nothing wrong with like she's expressing her um displeasure which is important. Like that's her identifying herself as an individual and saying, I don't want what you want. She just doesn't have the language to describe that in more nuanced ways. Lots of adults <laughs> don't either. She, she just doesn't have the emotional control to say emotions aside, communicate instead. Well, she could absolutely this tell me true. that yeah, I am yeah. pissed off about this because um, she uses yeah. full sentences now as a two-year-old. It is intense. Uh, but yeah, anyways, Siobhan, enough about my child's development through meltdowns what's your actual meltdown for this week that's such a good question i we've had a really good week i don't think there's anything oh yesterday yesterday afternoon i um needed a wine to just kind of regulate myself um which is as adults we use different techniques um as our children are learning to do wine isn't great for our children um but i just wasn't like you know those days where just everything is annoying you for no particular reason and worse you have enough insight at the time to know that I'm being unreasonable. So yeah, uh, that was me yesterday afternoon and I'm just like, dude, I need wine. I just need to chill out and have a beautiful red, um, red glass of red wine and just breathe on through it. But it was, I mean, it was very low level, which was nice. Um, and then things got a bit easier, but just, yeah, it's, uh, we're, at, we're getting towards the end of the year. This is our last recording of, of 2021, uh, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, end of year is always a bit hard. We're using screens a lot more, which I'm cool with, but um, our child is getting upset more more intensely and more often when we're um, putting limits on that, which again, perfectly understandable and reasonable, but just hard to deal with when it's hot and unpleasant and I want to have a nap. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think one thing I'm going to jump in here with before everyone takes this and runs is that it's probably not the screens that are contributing no, definitely. to Timo's melting down, right? It's What do you think it is that's um, contributing to this um, increase in uh, challenging behaviour right now? Oh, um, I mean, so he's going through a growth spurt right now. He had a four-hour nap at daycare yesterday. Insane. <laughs> four hours. I, to I told Kristen this last night and she was like, oh, no. And I just went into the night going, <laughs> okay, like stealing myself the disaster. He was fine. He slept perfectly normally. I know. Uh, when did Went he to, bed to bed maybe five minutes later than normal time. Yep. I was so confused. Woke up Me normal too. time, a little bit later than normal time, actually. Okay. Uh, yep. I don't know. Don't, when I dropped him off at daycare today, um, his uh, 
um, educator was like was saying, oh, I was so worried. I was thinking about you last night. How how did everything go? I was like, fine. She's like, what? I said, I know. I don't know. Kids are weird, man. No idea. But anyway, so yeah. So that that's my meltdown. Getting towards the end of the year, just feeling a bit overwhelmed. You asked me a question. That question was, what do I think is contributing? I think um, I. It's because I'm saying no. <laughs> I think I think the main thing is that people don't like to be told they can't have what they want and that's children too absolutely so what what what's your take on it well Sienna's obviously going through the same thing but it's got a lot more to do with all the extra activities we're doing the unpredictable Mm, nature of our days now because it is the it's the holiday period we've lost our Thursday play groups because school finished um Our Wednesdays are a little bit more unpredictable because we usually go to my parents' place and they're away. Um, yes, our days are just so unpredictable. True. We're going to carols in the afternoons. We're going to friends' houses. We're going to cousins. And and all of this stuff is really overwhelming to a child that Absolutely. really likes rhythm and Routine predictability. And, and then you're also like, yeah, they're so overstimulated because they're seeing so many people all the time and they're having so many more treats and they're doing so many more things. And it's just... All of that unpredictability, they're probably hanging on to that one predictable thing, which is probably TV, which like uh, my child especially uses the TV like she uses breastfeeding and that's to help her calm her body down because she never stops moving. And the only time she ever sits still and calms her body down is when she's watching something. So her mind is busy, but her body is calm. And that actually really works for us in particular. And yeah, we're exactly the I same. Think... Timo's a very active kid, and when he is watching the screen, he's cuddled with me on the lap, um, and he's just quiet and calm, sucking his thumb, got his blankie, things are calm. And I mean, that's how adults often use TV as well. Like, how Absolutely. common is it for many of us to? I mean, that's exactly what I did last night. I had a glass of red wine, and I watched the new season of The Witcher. That was my calm down mm. before bed activity. Like, it's. We get distressed. We go, oh, no, they're using it for regulation. You're like, yeah, they're using it how we use it. Yeah, and there's so TV's getting a really bad rap at the moment, saying that it's mm. overstimulating, it affects executive functioning, it, it's dopamine dumping, and I haven't seen any evidence for that at the moment, and I've been trying to, like, beat it into everyone that there's no scientific evidence for that. But everyone is on, like, a mission to cancel things like Cocomelon. But the thing is that every child has a different thing that they need. So for children like my child and Siobhan's, our children have to go 150% until they drop at night. If they, yeah. they, they don't have a calm down routine, and believe us, we tried. I tried oh, yeah. so hard to do calm down routines. They told me yeah. that I could we do We don't do calm down, we do wind up and then crash. Yeah, exactly. We, we have to run full pelt to bedtime, otherwise bedtime won't happen. Like. Yeah, so, but other kids, they really need an hour of winding down, otherwise they can't get to sleep. So these kids might need less TV, and it's all about individual differences and nuances. It's about listening to your child mm-hmm. and knowing that there isn't one hard and fast rule, especially when it comes to TV. That's, that's a really tricky thing to navigate. So, yeah, just wanted to stop that before anyone jumped on the cancel Cocomelon bandwagon. <laughs> yes. No, I, you're absolutely right. And like uh, this time of year, so Christmas time is when we're recording this, is exactly that. Like the routine's out of, out of whack. Usually on Thursdays we go um, to Little and Active, which is kind of like a gym program. He sees his friends. He has a wonderful time. 
that's finished for the year. So things are different and our kids get, they really like rhythms like all people do. Like we like having predictability and it just mixes things up. It's just the same reason that I'm feeling a bit bad at this time of year. So super normal, challenging, but very normal. Anyway, that kind of actually brings us really nicely to today's topic, uh, which is after school restraint collapse. So it's the idea that um, when kids come home from daycare, from school, they uh, are very, um, what's, what's a polite way of saying this? They're just really overwhelmed and often their behavior is intense and really hard for us to manage. They might have a lot of meltdowns, a lot of tantrums. They might um, be very uninterested in doing what we ask of them. And so this has been termed after school restraint collapse. So um, basically it's the idea that in its simplest forms that after kids come home from school, their ability to restrain or contain their feelings and their emotional responses collapses. So you do, you get more of the behavioral challenges, you get more of the um, complaining, more of the emotionality, um, all these kinds of things. So Kristen, what do we know about the research behind this stuff? Look, there's not a ton of research on after-school restraint collapse in particular. So we can uh, extrapolate from a bunch of developmental psychology theories, uh, which is common, especially in like child therapeutic settings. Um, but currently, there isn't a lot of research on after-school restraint collapse. Um, I did a I did a look. I couldn't see anything. There's one person that seems to really be a proponent of it, um, but there isn't any hard and fast research on it. So um, we might suggest a way that this can be researched in the future at the end of this episode and if some budding honours student or PhD student wants to take it and run with it, rad, um, we'd love to see this kind of research emerge. But there isn't any um, research in particular. We do have two theories why um, after school restraint collapse might happen um, and that's either self-restraint depletion or defensive de detachment. So self-restraint depletion is this idea that you have a certain amount of self-restraint that you wake up during the day with, um, or you can replenish it throughout the day. Um, I have a video on TikTok about the rainbow um, and how every time mm. something triggers you or affects you, you like lose one of your rainbows until there's no rainbow left and all of a sudden you explode. Um, if you don't understand that context, I will link it in the show notes so that you can see mm. what I mean. Um, but basically you have this certain amount of self-restraint every time something bothers you or you're working really hard to sit still for hours, you're adjusting to a new schedule, you're missing your parents, you're learning challenging topics, you're navigating the social scene. All of these things take time and effort and self-restraint. So you have, you work really hard when you're out of the home to be good, to meet these expectations so that when you come home to a safe environment, you just let it all out because you know that it's safe to do it here and it's not safe to do it at school. So that's one idea is self-restraint depletion. The other one is defensive detachment. And that's the idea that um, your child has missed you all day. They've been um, without you. It might be that they've just started prep and they're not used to full days without you. Um, they were thinking about you all day. They were wondering what you were doing and they just come home really frustrated and mad at you essentially um, mm. now it could be a little bit of both it could be one or the other and it really depends on your particular child um, but how you addressed after school restraint collapse 
um, might vary based on which one of these you think your child is experiencing more, but we'll go into that a little bit later. Now, Siobhan, you said there was some um, other research that we could mm. pull in to kind of explain self-restraint collapse. Yeah, so you kind of touched on it quite nicely, but basically it's the idea that children are still learning to regulate their emotions. They're still learning to manage their responses to things. And I think a nice way to think about this is how we as adults process so we experience it as well. We just are better equipped to manage our emotions and manage our restraint collapse, as it were. So, I mean, it's not at all uncommon for us to come home. I mean, we are living in pandemic times, so it's not quite the same. Many of us work from home. But imagine the old days where we went to work in an office and um, we maybe we had a rough time with our boss that day. We couldn't get the sushi we wanted. It was sold out in the line. Um, we hadn't had enough coffee that day. We had had to work with a bunch of difficult clients. Um, we just really needed a hug from our partner. We come home, we collapse on the couch, and we just cuddle the dog. And the key difference with some of these things is that as adults, we get to decide what we do with our time. When we come home, we know that we feel overwhelmed and we lie on the couch and we watch TV or we um, have a nap or we read a book whatever we do to try and recharge. Whereas sometimes what happens with our kids is that they come home, they need to do something to recharge or relax. And instead, understandably, we as parents say, okay, right, you need to get your homework done. Get your lunchbox out of your bag, take your clothes off, have a bath, whatever the list is. And all of these things are important and need to get done. But perhaps we're not necessarily tuning into what our children need at that time which maybe they need some downtime and maybe like definitely they need a bath, but maybe there are other ways to prioritize these things and there are ways that we can really tune in and connect with our kids. So you asked about um, the research specifically and I think the emotion regulation research is really where it comes at. So most of the things, um, sorry, the development that happens with emotional regulation isn't finalized until our kids' teen years and like even up until their late 20s which is why we think of um, young adults as rowdy and out of control, uh, because they are. Um, if you think back to your teen, teen years and even your child years, like we just aren't in control of these things. And when, Kristen, you started talking about um, the ways that our children are challenged at school throughout the day, we have to kind of remember that that's the point of school. They are designed to be challenged to learn at the edge of their learning, but it's really emotionally mentally cognitively draining um and like we want we want our kids to be challenged but we just really need to focus on how draining these things are um and that our kids not only don't necessarily have the brain structure or the the capacity um in terms of their neurodevelopment to quite do these things which is why they rely on us as their parents to help them um but they've been through often a really challenging day and your TikTok, I think, is the best way to describe it. So hopefully, yeah, we'll, we'll link that in there. It's the idea that um, as adults, we have all these layers of skills and techniques and um, patterns and neural pathways that we've put in place over decades that our kids don't have. Yeah, exactly. So I think the best way to characterize after school restraint collapse, um, to see if your child is suffering from that, is one, if they 
present really strong emotions upon pickup or soon after arriving home, things like screaming, crying, whining, disrespectful behavior as well if they're adolescents um, or middle childhood kids and anger. And it can be more prominent in kids that are really sensitive, um, mm. that either have learning or socialization problems or a highly sensitive temperament, um, or it can actually be caused um, or exacerbated by a lack of sleep, um, mm -hmm. hunger, they might be hangry, they might be overstimulated, or they might be a little bit sick. So it can be really common for normal kids um, and it might come and go and it can be really common for kids that are neurodivergent or sensitive, but it can happen to any kid. And it's one of the key things that you'll hear parents say is I don't understand why they're so good for other people, but they're not mm. good for me. And the best thing yeah. to know is that that is a beautiful thing to hear because it means you have created a safe space for your child to be who they can be without masking. And as someone who masks a lot of behaviors myself in social situations, masking is exhausting. It creates a lot of anxiety for me and my body. I physiologically feel gross if I have to mask for too long and all your children are doing this um, by holding themselves together all day. So when they come home and they can take that mask off, that means that you've done a really great job creating a safe and secure environment for them. So take that as a compliment when your child is screaming in your face at 3.30 in the afternoon yep. after you pick them up from school. Yep. Doesn't mean it's not hard. We completely yeah. recognize that it's rough and that whilst, yes, it means that your child loves you, we're the, often the most... Um, challenging around the people we love. I mean, I'm still like this. I'm the biggest rat bag to my mother when I'm in a bad mood and I feel awful about it afterwards. But I keep reminding her that our children are always the worst with the ones we love the most, right, mum? And she's like, yep, yeah, cool, go away. <laughs> As a woman in my 30s and my mother in my you know, 60s. But um, anyway, all of that aside, so um, let's talk through some things that have been shown to be helpful. So as we talked about, prior, there's not a lot of specific research addressing um, upper school restraint collapse, but there is a lot of clinical um, information. So because this, as, as Kristen mentioned, this happens more often with kids who are experiencing other challenges, so whether that's ADHD or um, autism spectrum disorder, or they are experiencing other social difficulties or learning difficulties, because of these added challenges, they often have to hold more together, which means it's a bigger um, kind of release when they get home and therefore their behavior is more challenging. So um, because of this, we have more information from clinical settings. So um, often people who go to a, a psychologist for help um, and then these psychologists have written papers um, on their kind of clinical experience and clinical handbooks and how best to um, handle this. Um, we can talk through some of the things that are really helpful, both in terms of helping to prevent um, outbursts or like uh, Helping to, manage, helping to put things in place to manage our children's experiences. Because obviously this is unpleasant for them as well. No one um, enjoys a tantrum um, and being in it is just as challenging for them as it is for us um, to be the recipient. So ways that we can kind of try to avoid or at least temper the experience. Um, as Kristen mentioned, like really trying to find an opportunity for connection. So whether or not that's... Um, going somewhere special after school or even just doesn't have to be a specific going somewhere but like finding an opportunity to connect so talking about their day that 
could be helpful. For other kids, it might be triggering, maybe giving them a hug, um, giving, playing their favorite song or drawing their attention to the outside world. So this is a technique used in mindfulness. So instead of um, them focusing on their body and their own internal experiences, which might be turbulent, um, kind of sitting down and looking at the trees together, watching the birds, something that kind of draws their attention outside of themselves. Um, another thing that's really, really helpful is not trying to have our children make decisions. So um, obviously making decisions is a cognitively complex task and when they're already drained, that can be even harder for them. So um, helping them by making those decisions for them. So don't ask them if they're hungry, just put the food there. And if they want it, they'll take it. If they want different food, they'll probably let you know. Um, ideally, allowing play as soon as they come home. That's This is probably one of the biggest um, things that can be really useful. Unfortunately, in our academic settings nowadays, even as young as early primary school, kids do not have enough time to play. And it's this is something I find really, really challenging because all of the evidence demonstrates that play-based learning is the most effective. So ideally, up until 10 or 11 years, we would have a play-based curriculum. curriculum. We don't, not in Australia and not in most of the world. It's very academic and it starts way too early um, before, our before our babies, before our children's brains are ready. Um, they should be playing, they should be doing exploratory play, they should be outside more than they are, which means that they don't get enough of this kind of interaction. So if you can, when they come home, let them play for an hour, maybe even more, if you can. Uninterrupted play, um, ideally physical, because often our kids don't have enough physical play either. Um, sometimes they even only get like an hour on the playground, and that's sometimes broken into like a 20 minute break and then a 40 minute break, they need so much more. Children as young as three need about, or actually as young as two, need three hours of physical play or activity a day, um, which they're not getting. So allowing your children the time and space to play and then homework afterwards. Um, and ideally, depending on how old your child is, you should be doing that with them. So that's because not only have they had a whole day of cognitively demanding learning, um, there's so much homework required for schooling which I also have feelings on, but we can cover that in another podcast. Um, but yeah, sitting with them, even just as emotional support during that additionally cognitively demanding task. Anyway, that's a quick ramble. Um, what do you have to add, Christine? Well, I think what you said is amazing. And I think it might take a little bit of experimentation for you and your child yeah. to find the yeah. right thing. But I do think that once you find a good um, fit, make it into a rhythm or a routine make it predictable so your child knows they get picked up from school they put music on in the car they get out of the car they dump their bag wherever it needs to be dumped like don't make them unpack it just yet because they'll probably scream at you uh, give them a hot second and then they put their togs on and they jump straight in the pool or they change out of their uniform or not depends what they want um, and they go and grab their bike and they do this every afternoon and there's always an afternoon snack ready whether you've gotten it prepared for them to have in the car um, if you're okay with kids eating food in the car and you don't mind crumbs and they're not rear-facing and tilted backwards obviously um, having all of these things ready to go is going to minimize the likelihood that these things are going to happen it doesn't mean that you are going to avoid after store restraints collapse 
with perfect um, fidelity. You're not, it is still going to happen and that is okay, but it will reduce the likelihood. So a lot of this is um, alongside that self-restraint depletion kind of theory of why it happens. So in terms of um, maybe if a child is suffering more from a defensive de detachment, depending on how, what kind of child you have, um, there are a few things you can do to help them feel connected to you throughout the day, in addition to offering lots of connection once, they, once you guys get home from school. So um, one thing that was really beautiful that I saw uh, at the start of the American school year, so in July, was the idea of drawing a connection, mm. like a heart connection yeah, on your child and on you. And you tell your child that you should press the heart whenever um, you miss me and I will feel it. We are connected. And I think this comes from the idea of the Invisible String book, which is by Patricia, Patricia Cass. Um, which is a beautiful book and it's all about mm. how we're like always connected to those we love um, but yeah giving them that little bit of imaginative pretend play around like every time I miss you I press my heart and it's connected to mum that might help them feel more connected throughout the day it might help them deal with really challenging moments because it gives them something sensory to focus on um, and it gives them a positive thought to replace the negative one um, and another one is you might leave little notes in lunch boxes like you see lots of insta mums do this now and you think it might just be because like you know it's the insta worthy thing with all the fancy lunches but there's actually like having little lunch notes can be really helpful for your child they might not be able to read yet maybe it's just a picture <laughs> or a little love heart but it's something to say that my parents are thinking about me when I'm not with them and that can really help kids navigate this whole idea of defensive detachment so yeah, I think that's all I really have to add to that, Siobhan. Is there anything else? Oh, you know what? I know what we've got to add. How do we deal with that meltdown, that mid after school restraint collapse mm. meltdown as it's happening? What do we do? Yes. So I think um, we kind of touched on this, you like addressed it with the swimming. So, so much of um, meltdown response can be really well connected to polyvagal theory. So um, this is the idea that our vagus nerve is highly linked with our stress response. So we have this nerve in our body, it's called the vagus nerve. It is um, a highly vascular, so it's um, very like, uh, what's the word? Like it's got a lot to do with our um, our blood. You know, sorry, this sounds silly. So highly <laughs> vascular, which means it um, delivers, it's connected to our blood system. Obviously it's a nerve, that's, it's, everything's connected in our body. Hold up, Kristen, cut this out, and can you edit this because I'm just on a total chaos melt. Okay, yeah, let's start again. Timer around 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> 30 minutes. Let's start again. So I'll just touch in about polyvagal and actually describe what it is for real instead of laughing yeah. about. Yeah. Okay. It's hilarious. So, <laughs> okay, so the vagus nerve um, is our. It's one of our cranial nerves. It's our tenth cranial nerve, and it's. Um, what, it, what we describe as it interfaces with our parasympathetic nervous system. So our, we have two kind of uh, ways that our nervous systems present. There's the um, parasympathetic and the sympathetic. So our sympathetic nervous system is our, the way our body responds to um, stress. So it's our direct 
um, physiological response to stress. So it's what we talk about when we often talk about the fight or fight, flight or fight response. So it's how our body um, responds to stress. So we add more blood to the to our muscles. Our breathing increases. Our digestion reduces. Um, and this is what is being activated when your child's in the middle of a meltdown or a tantrum. They are in stress mode. So the way that we can help our child or our children come back to a state of calm to kind of reactivate their parasympathetic nervous system, which is our um, nervous system at all other times, our kind of day-to-day -day functioning, where it's a lot more calm, a lot more in control, more relaxed breathing, standard um, uh, blood response is by activating our vagus nerve. So as I said, this is a nerve that goes all throughout your body and is um, a really great way to kind of hijack this system in a positive way to activate um, a more calm response. So things like swimming are really great. Um, water is really calming. Uh, singing is really, really great. Humming, dancing, physical movement, um, kind of the mindfulness that we touched on before. So taking ourselves out of our body instead of focusing on our rapid breathing, our beating heart in our ears, um, looking at the trees, looking at the birds, uh, listening for bird songs, these kinds of things. So just trying to really, um, one thing that I like to use with my toddler, um, and obviously you can do this in different ways with older kids, is I like to use um, questions. This depends, like mid-meltdown, talking isn't useful. Once you're kind of starting to escape the meltdown through the other techniques, so whether or not that's um, singing or calm, sometimes you just have to wait it out, um, which can be really challenging as a parent. Um, but once they're starting to come out of it or even before they enter the meltdown, you can try um, activating their like cognition or their prefrontal cortex by asking questions. Um, this is a really fun one to do with like primary school age kids. So um, usually I ask a question that they know the answer to and my question indicates that it's entirely ridiculous. So I'll say something like, um, did you know that your grandma has green hair? And they'll be like, what? No, grandma does not have green hair. She has brown hair. And I was like, oh, I don't think so. I think she has pink hair. And then you just really ham it up and turn it into like what ridiculous adult would think that grandma has green hair. And it can be a really good strategy to prevent meltdowns. It can be a really good way to redirect once the meltdown is kind of on the way out. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it can be part of the meltdown and become, why did you say grandma has green hair? You know grandma doesn't have green hair. I've experienced this um, with my nephews <laughs> on both sides where it works and where it does not work. So these are just some ideas. Um, do you have any other great ideas, Kristen, that have worked for you or that you've seen done? Um, because we're talking about after school restraint collapse, which can apply to children in daycare and it can apply mm. all the way up to high school. One thing that I think we need to reframe what a meltdown is and looks like. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to episode five, where we talk about tantrums as panic attacks, which is something yeah. that Siobhan coined a little while ago. Um, if we think about them in the frame of mind of what a panic attack is and looks like, how do we activate that parasympathetic nervous system for older kids? Well, as an adult, something that I do is I breathe. And in particular, I breathe in for five beats and out for 10 because a longer out breath, so in through your nose for five, out for 10 through your mouth, breathing out for longer than you breathe in is gonna regulate your breathing, slow it down because when you're breathing fast, it activates the fight or flight system. 
Um, and you want to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and that's what breathing out longer than you breathe in does. Mm -hmm. So for older kids, teaching them this breathing technique, yeah, which they might not think is useful when they're not in crisis mode. So you have to teach it to them outside of crisis mode and then you have to remind them of it when they're in meltdown in crisis mode. But that is something that has been really powerful for me as a very anxious adult. Um, that is something that always stops my panic attacks dead, making sure that I'm focusing on my breathing. And when you start to focus on your breathing, you are enacting mindfulness at the same time. Mm-hmm. You are focusing on how the breath feels going in through your nose and down into your body and then how it feels coming up and out of your body, out of your lungs and out through your mouth and you're counting. So you can't focus on as many things. You can't get tangled up in all those negative thoughts if you're counting your breath, if you're focusing on where it's going and if Mm. you're listening to what's going on around you, which might be mum singing, it might be silence, it could be any number of things. So I think breathing is a really good one for kids who are old enough to understand it. And they will just need a little bit of a reminder to use that tool until it becomes automatic. But breathing is a great one. Yeah. And I think um, for your little kids, finding things that can help them regulate their breathing too. So for my daughter, that's breastfeeding um, or teethers, having something to chew on um, or like an icy pole, something cold to suck on, just kind of activating that system of like, having to regulate your breathing um even without knowing that you're regulating it so do you have any other ideas of how you could do that with little kids yeah like i mean singing that's why singing works because it forces us to regulate our breathing um you can't sing and hyperventilate at the same time um similar with humming these kinds of things um yeah i think that's brilliant and breathing is such a great strategy um i think actually we should totally do a whole podcast episode about polyvagal theory and breathing and why these things work. Um, one way that I really connected with me about thinking about mindfulness, um, I remember watching, I'll see if I can find it, this YouTube video of this Buddhist monk talking about how mindfulness is all about turning off our monkey, our monkey mind. So it's like the chatter that's just always in the background. It's That's your little monkey mind and you need to shut it down. Um, and that breathing is such a great way to do that because you can't, count your breathing, count your breaths and think about too many other things at the same time. Um, So these are all just some really good ideas that we can use ourselves, obviously, but also um, help our little ones. I think one thing I wanted to add, um, one thing, all the things we could talk for hours, we always do, Um, but that if your child doesn't experience after school restraint collapse, that's totally fine too. This is a thing that some kids experience that others don't. Some kids have it sometimes and not others. Some kids have it all the time. Um, All of these are perfectly normal. I think the reason it's becoming more prevalent is that people are feeling more comfortable to talk about it. I think as well, we're much more open about our kids' struggles. So kids who have, say, um, historically would have had things like ADHD but wasn't diagnosed, um, their parents don't feel shamed that their children are struggling. They're happy to share their experience. Um, I mean, yeah, so like, it's not that these things happen more, although maybe they do because our kids don't get enough chance to play as they used to. Um, But if your kid loves school, comes home from school happy, that's totally fine too. There is nothing wrong with them. In fact, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's so totally fine, but it doesn't mean that you should judge another parent for reporting that their kid is struggling with school. 
And it's not like you're doing something right that they're doing wrong. A lot of it comes down to child temperament. It comes down to how they handle the world. And you're not a failure as a parent if someone's telling you that it's your fault that your child can't cope after the end of the school day. It absolutely isn't. There is no room for mum shame or or mum guilt or parent guilt in general around these kinds of things. And I definitely hear it um, around the schoolyard, parents talking about, oh, have you seen this naughty kid? He does awful things when he gets home from school. And it's got nothing to do with that and everything to do with a child's innate temperament and how they are coping with the world. And that parent is probably an exceptional parent, really struggling quite hard to get on top of it. And hopefully some of these things in this episode help you find new ways to work with your child's temperament these are things you cannot change but you can work with them to help you both function better in the world i know that as a parent of a highly sensitive child i've often found myself wishing that i had an easy baby and i don't anymore because this is my child i know that my journey is different and if someone tells me that i'm a bad parent because my kid didn't sleep through the night until they were two i know that i'm not i know that i've actually got a child that i have to parent with way more effort and i'm doing a great job because she's happy she's healthy she's securely attached and that is a really hard thing to do with a highly sensitive child so if you have one of those children that suffers from after school's restraint collapse suffers from high sensitivity Know that you're a fantastic parent if your child is happy, healthy and securely attached because those are the children that are most at risk to um, kind of like neglectful parenting or just, uh, I don't know what you call it, traditional uh, authoritarian parenting. Those kids are at most at risk. They're the most likely to have behavioral problems in the future if they are parented with authoritarian parenting as opposed to authoritative gentle parenting. So yeah know that you're doing a great job and you are doing something that is very hard and it's not your fault if your child cannot um, perform to the same level in terms of emotional and behavioral regulation as another child could not have said it better myself absolutely yeah anyways so that's it for the episode on after school restraint collapse Uh, which is perfectly in time for your kiddos to head back to school if you're in Australia. If you're in the US um, or the UK, your kiddos might have been back for a while now, but hopefully um, after the winter break, um, you've started seeing this and you might need to use it um, or you haven't seen it and that's awesome for you. But yeah, that's it for this episode. So let's finish with our magic moment. Siobhan, what was your magic moment? Oh goodness, I've had a few recently, which is really nice. Um, We... Uh, have been singing it's so sweet we've been singing um uh um what's it called wheels on the bus um a lot and uh timo gets obsessed with the babies on the bus are crying um he makes makes me do um babies on the bus go wow 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 and so we do that all the time and then i changed the mums on the bus um traditionally it's like the mums on the bus go shh, shh, shh. and i was like nah that's i don't like that um so i've said the, mum, the mummies on the bus go cuddle 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 and it's great uh, because I just get cuddles because we sing this song over and over again. <laughs> and he just cuddles me fiercely. And I love it. And I'm happy to keep this up because it's just so adorable. He grabs me by the neck and goes, Mummy's go cuddle, cuddle, cuddle. And I'm like, they do go cuddle. And I'm getting cuddles and life is good. That's awesome. I always have an issue with, I think maybe it's, maybe it's the Wiggles version. One of the versions 
has mummy's go shh, 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 and daddy's say I love you. Maybe it's kind of oh, yeah, one of them. Know. Like I've heard it. I am I am offended. Um, <laughs> so we do I love you for both, but maybe we'll do cuddle, cuddle, cuddle. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's well, singing more and more songs at the moment. It's really lovely. Yeah, what's your magic so moment? Cute. Tell me. Um, so my magic moment is that on the walk up to put my daughter to bed last night she like is on my hip because she likes to be carried up the stairs which is getting very hard because she is two and she is long and she is large and I am a small human and that's a lot but anyways on the walk up she's sitting on my hip and she pats my chest and she goes me love mommy and I'm like oh I love you too and she goes snuggle 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 like, and I'm just like, oh, that's painfully adorable. Like, what do I do with that? And it's just unsolicited. And like, she's two, like she's barely got mm. language. I mean, she's got a lot of language now actually, but you know, the fact that she understands an abstract concept such as love the, or, or just showing affection in general and knows how valuable it is, is phenomenal. And she'll do it to my husband too. She'll be like walking along the streets with him to go and see Christmas lights at the end of our street. And just pat him and say, me love daddy. And it's just so sweet and so magic. And it just, it came around at the same time as throwing herself on the floor for tantrums. So there's been some <laughs> kind of, <laughs> there's been a massive brain explosion all around. It's um, almost like it's a survival it's technique. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, I do need to up the tantrums, but how do I make sure that my mother doesn't abandon me? Okay, I'll tell her I love her and make her heart explode. There we go. That fixes that. Keeping everything balanced and she's doing yeah. a goddamn good job of it. Um, I am very impressed. So, yeah, I am still firmly on the hook. I am unlikely to abandon my child anytime. <laughs> that, that's for the best, I think. <laughs> I think you're right. Good for you. For the best. Uh, but yeah, anyways, that's us for this episode. Um, we will see you next week, which we haven't decided the topic on yet. I'm sure we'll do it eventually. Um, but have a wonderful first week of school for our Aussie families and a wonderful week of school, daycare, work, whatever you're doing for everybody else around the world. And we'll see you next time. See you next Bye. time.